0: Good afternoon, or good morning, as the case may be. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute, and we're here today because 25 years ago this month, on August 21st, 1996, President Bill Clinton signed into law uh, legislation that created a special type of savings account. These savings accounts let Americans save money for their medical expenses tax-free, and the law called them Archer Medical Savings Accounts. Then seven years later in 2003, President George W. Bush signed a law that allowed even more Americans to save even more money for their medical expenses tax-free. That 2003 law called the vehicle for that tax-free, those tax-free health savings, health savings accounts. So this month really marks the 25th anniversary of the federal government allowing Americans to save money tax-free for their medical expenses. That idea and the uh, the concept of tax-free savings has taken off since then. If you look at the number of health savings accounts that have been uh, that that are on the, the, the Americans hold since uh, 2011, they've grown almost fivefold from six million health savings tax-free health savings accounts to 30. 0.2 million. At the same time, the uh, the number or the amount that Americans have contributed to health savings accounts has grown pretty dramatically from about $10 billion per year or $11 billion per year in 2011 to about $41 billion per year in 2020. And the amount of, of assets that taxpayers have accumulated in their health savings accounts that'll be available for them to spend on out-of-pocket medical expenses and so forth has grown even more dramatically to $127 billion, or I should say about $100 billion right now. And by 2023, projections suggest it will grow to about to nearly $130 billion. So health savings accounts have proven pretty popular what we're going to be talking about right now is why the federal government created health savings accounts in the first place and i'm very excited to have on this panel two of the nation's leading experts on health savings accounts the tax treatment of health insurance uh, and uh and the effects that the special tax treatment uh that the federal government has afforded to some forms of health insurance have had on health insurance and health care delivery and the quality of cost of health care. First, uh, we've got uh, John Goodman, who's the CEO and, uh, and president of the Goodman Institute. John Goodman is also a scholar at the Independent Institute and has long been a proponent of health savings accounts and medical savings accounts. In fact, one of the first healthcare books at the Cato Institute published was Patient Power by John Goodman and Gerald Musgrave. And for his work promoting this idea, the Wall Street Journal has dubbed John Goodman, the father of health savings accounts. Also on the panel, we've got Brian Blaze. Brian is the President of Blaze Strategies, he's a former economist with the National Economic Council in the White House. He is a former center, Senate, uh, lead, former economist with the Senate leadership. In fact, he and I held the same position in the Senate leadership uh, many years apart. Uh, and he's a former scholar at the Mercatus Institute. So, welcome, John and Bryant.
1: Glad to be Thanks, with Michael. you.
0: John, I wanna start with you. I wanna ask why did Congress create te- uh, these vehicles for tax-free health savings in the first place? Why have something called medical savings accounts or health savings accounts that lets taxpayers save money for their health expenses tax-free?
1: Well, you know, it was amazing that they did it because at the time, virtually every special interest group was on the other side and they were either against the idea or they were neutral. And that includes the American Medical Association, the insurance companies, the business roundtable, the hospitals, uh, just about every group you can think of was either against it or, or neutral. And that was also true in the think tank world. It was pretty much me and the Cato Institute and, and the think tank world. The other think tanks were not on board to, it took them another 10 years before they came on board. So it was just a small group of people with a with a good idea and it made so much sense that we got enough people in Congress to, to back it. And by the way, this was bipartisan. It's very important. Uh, today, uh, things have become extremely partisan. But in those days, we had Democrats and Republicans uniting behind this very good idea.
0: And it's one of the reasons I like to point out that Bill Clinton signed the law of the creating Archer medical savings accounts, which are the 25 years ago, which were the precursor to health savings accounts. But uh, Brian, maybe you can jump in here as well. Why have tax-free health savings? Why have tax-free savings for health as opposed to uh, food or shelter?
2: Hey, thanks, Michael. and it is a real privilege to be on this panel with you and John. I've learned so much from both of you about health economics. You know, the tax code has incentivized third-party health insurance and a lot of control to employers. So with you know employers offering health insurance, And with IRS decisions in the 1950s that made that a tax-free benefit, um, we've given a lot of control to employers over our health insurance um, and third-party health payment. I mean, what what we uh, increasingly, I think, know is that third-party payment has separated consumers from the providers of care. Um, and has led to lots of misallocations within um, within the healthcare sector. And when consumers have more control and power over the actual spending, they make better decisions. So we know that health um, savings accounts are associated with um, people uh, uh, making better decisions, spending less uh, without any adverse health actions. So to, um, uh, the the sort of the, the tax advantage of HSAs is to um, uh, create some amount of tax equity between third-party payment of um, health expenses with um, what John Goodman refers to as self-insurance, where the consumer controls um, the spending.
0: Sure, the tax code, that's really been around maybe as long as the income tax has been, since 1913, where if your employer pays you a dollar in wages, that's gonna be subject to the income tax. But if your employer takes that dollar and gives it to you in the form of health benefits, that's not going to be subject to the income tax. And then when 1935 rolled around and uh, Congress created the Social Security payroll tax, uh, the uh, health benefits were exempt from that tax as well. And as tax rates rose, uh, Congress created the Medicare payroll tax and uh, did other things to increase taxes. The difference between your employer giving you a dollar of Cash wages that you go and spend on your healthcare, and the and the and the the the, the same employer giving you that dollar in the form of health benefits that uh, the employer controls and uses to make your health insurance and healthcare decisions. There's a big difference depending on your marginal tax rate. You can lose a substantial amount of money if you take that uh, that that compensation as cash wages, and so it creates this situation where either you let your employer control that. That dollar and buy your health insurance, or you're penalized uh, in the form of a higher income and payroll tax liability, and so uh, that that creates a distortion uh, that favors. The, I think Brian, what you're saying is it creates a distortion that favors employer-sponsored insurance, that uh, that lets your employer control your health insurance decisions, that encourages people to buy more health insurance. And economists across the board have said that this is really a really stupid way to run a railroad. It, there's no logical reason why your employer uh, uh, should be making your healthcare decisions for you. There might be some pooling benefits. We could get into that later uh, of employer-sponsored uh, group plans, but uh, it there is definitely there are definitely a lot of inefficiencies that are involved with letting your employer control that money and letting uh, a- and the incentives that it creates when you can avoid taxes by buying more and more health insurance, more comprehensive health insurance. Uh, economists generally tell us, uh, most economists I think agree, that the that's this thing that we call the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance creates all sorts of problems in our healthcare sector, either creates or contributes to almost all of the problems that we see in our health sector. Uh, excessive insurance, uh, over-utilization of care, excessive prices, uh, and uh, gaps in coverage because you lose employer-sponsored insurance when your uh, when your connection to an employer disappears. There's one element before we get into uh, specifically how health savings accounts try try to solve these problems. There's one element of uh, of the exclusion that I think gets short shrift that I'd like to highlight, which is that when the tax code w- tells workers that either you let your employer control that dollar or you take it as income and pay taxes on it. That, that's a lot like a that's a lot like a mandate and a penalty. Either you use your compensation in the way that we want you to, or you have to pay more money to the government. And so it creates a situation where, unless you let your employer control that money and choose your health insurance, you're paying higher taxes. And a lot of the people then end up letting their employer make that decision for them. And it's not just $1 we're talking about for a family for for a worker with family coverage, it's about fifteen thousand dollars on average of their earnings that they are letting their their employer control because if they don't, they'll have to pay taxes on it. And so over time, the the exclusion has had this effect. If you look at this graph, what it shows is that to, since two thousand, it, it shows the amount of money that employers control that the exclusion uh a uh, uh, lets employers control uh the amount of the workers money the exclusion lets their employers control and use to pick their workers health insurance it has risen to about a trillion dollars a year in 2019 it was about a trillion a trillion uh dollars uh, per year whereas uh and if you by comparison the amount of money that workers are putting in health savings accounts had risen to only 39 billion per year so that's a that's less than five percent uh of uh of the money that the, the exclusion allows employers to control the amount of the workers money that the exclusion allows employers to control health savings accounts have allowed workers to control a substantial portion of that without tax penalty but there's still a lot of it that they that that uh that workers don't control let's talk about how, how, how do health savings accounts work so there are these tax-free savings accounts john can you tell us what who can open a health savings account what are the rules uh, attended to health savings accounts and are those rules working well or are they causing problems uh also
1: well you have to have um catastrophic insurance in addition to your savings accounts and unfortunately the law requires an across the board deductible which means this is a high deductible several thousand dollars and that means that um uh you have to spend up to that deductible before you um, rely on your uh, third-party insurance, regardless of what kind of care we're talking about. It could be uh, insulin for a diabetic. It could be hospitalization. Uh, uh, no, no distinction is made between the kinds of care that people ought to be in charge of and manage on their own and the kinds of care that uh, are really difficult for patients uh, to manage. So um, the law uh, started out at a good place but now it has trapped us in a situation where the, uh, uh, the health savings accounts works best if, if you're healthy and all you do is save. Uh, it doesn't work very well for the chronically ill. So one of the changes that Brian and I would, would like to see is to make these accounts uh, conform to um, the ch- chronic illness so the diabetic, for example, could manage all his own uh, dollars if he chose to do so. And uh, if he's gonna manage his own care, it makes sense for him to manage the dollars that pay for that care.
2: Yeah. So there is, uh, there's a perception that you just need a high deductible health plan in order to have that plan be HSA qualified. But like John said, there are other requirements on the insurance plan beyond that. It has a minimum deductible. Uh, one of the uh, main ones is that that plan can't cover uh, services below the deductible except for sort of a limited set of preventive services. Um, There's also out-of-pocket limit requirements. Um, There's a requirement you're not allowed to have another health plan and have an HSA-qualified plan. So there's there's products called sort of direct primary care plans where you might contract with a, a primary care practice to provide your uh, basic preventive primary care services you can't have a plan like that and have um, uh, an hs make hsa contributions so it's estimated that about 60 percent of people that have plans that have deductibles that meet the hsa requirements um, don't make hsa contributions
0: so john has identified chronic care and how hsa qualified high deductible plans don't work very well for many patients with chronic conditions because you can't cover a lot of services below the deductible. Uh, Brian has mentioned direct primary care, which is uh, uh, what some people consider insurance. It's, It's an arrangement with a physician practice where you pay a set amount per period, per month, per year, and then you get certain services because there's some pooling involved there. Brian, I think you're saying that the Federal government doesn't allow you to have, to make HS tax-free HSA contributions if you're enrolled in something else that it considers a second health plan, which is what it considers direct primary care. What all this says to me is that, uh, that we've got the, the, the it, just as the tax code uh, was creating perverse incentives when it comes to employer-sponsored insurance, This attempt to correct those perverse incentives through health savings accounts is also blocking, uh, is also creating perverse incentives that prevent the healthcare industry from meeting the needs of consumers. With regard to the exclusion itself, uh, the federal government was essentially penalizing uh, consumers and insurance companies if they, uh, if, if consumers bought insurance directly from insurance companies that avoided the problem inherent with employer-sponsored insurance, which is that if you change employers, you lose your coverage. Here with health savings accounts, the federal government is still effectively penalizing health plans. It's allowing you to control a small portion of the money that your employer would otherwise control uh, by putting that money in a health savings account without tax consequences, but it's still inhibiting the market from providing the sorts of health insurance plans that would make health care uh, higher quality more accessible and more affordable for people with chronic conditions so what do we do about this problem that even hsa the 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 the, the supposed solution to the problems that the federal government had created uh with the exclusion uh help, which is health savings accounts what do we do to remove the barriers that HSAs are still putting in the way of the healthcare market and the health insurance market, innovating uh, in ways that improve the cost and quality of care for patients.
1: Well, let's be clear about what direct primary care really is. Uh, We used to call it concierge care. And back when health savings accounts were originally created under the tax law, Concierge care costs $10,000, $15,000 a year, and people could talk to their doctor by phone at nights and on weekends, and this was a luxury for the rich. But today, this model has really uh, come alive, and now it's, it's really inexpensive for an adult uh, middle age. It would be $50 a month for a child, $10 a month under a typical arrangement, and you get all primary care and you have your doctor's cell phone number, and at nights and weekends, you can call the doctor instead of going to the emergency room. This is probably the fastest growing part of the market for health insurance right now. People like it, and of course, when COVID came along, uh, this became even more important because people feared going to the emergency room because they're gonna be around sick people and get, get COVID. So so this is a very important kind of care for a very reasonable amount of money. You get all primary care. And uh, the law does not allow the employer to put money into a health savings account and let the employee choose a primary care doctor. And that's really dumb. So wh- one of the really important things to do is to liberate the employees and the employers and let them choose the kind of care that today with telemedicine is, um, Is the most popular form of care in terms of in terms of growth in the marketplace
0: and i want to ask you to talk about uh,
1: brian brian before you jump in on
0: direct primary care i want to read a comment that we've gotten from uh, dr john b i'm not sure which social medium he used to post his question but he writes do you expect an exemption to, to the no first dollar for a direct primary care restriction, especially capitated DPC programs. He says that he has found, let me see if I get this straight, more than a five to one claim cost savings using direct primary care and their self-funded plans, but can't write them with HSA plans, which means that from their perspective, HSAs have negative value without the direct primary care option. So I wanted to offer you that because I figured you had more to say about direct primary care. And that's, a I think, an, ex- an example of how HSAs might even be inhibiting direct primary care. And I also wanted to invite you to talk about what you did when you were at the White House to try to integrate uh, uh, direct primary care with HSAs.
2: You know, so your original question, um, uh, you wrote a paper a decade ago, uh, large HSAs. It had three components of it in your reform. Uh, The first was to uh, basically triple the amount of money that people could save in HSAs. Um, the second was to allow people to pay premiums uh, from their HSAs in order to create sort of tax parity between individually selected plans in the in the individual market with group coverage. The third was to delink um, the uh, HSAs from having a high deductible health plan requirement. Um, I think that one is the most important one, and you know, so I realize we are we are moving policy on the margin. So it is hard to do radical changes to the health sector um, overnight. There's a lot of political obstacles and a lot of inertia and special interests that protect the status quo. So my focus was, what can we do in the near term to expand HSAs, realizing that HSAs is a way to get the power in the hands of the consumer. Um, and when they have the power, then, I mean, what, what we really want is the supply side, the providers, to have to respond to consumer preferences. So what can we do to expand HSAs? Um, so uh, I love the delinking uh, HSAs from high-deductible health plans. If we could pass legislation that does that, I think that's some of the most important legislation that Congress could, could, could enact. Um, we had problems with the budgetary score of that, we looked at an alternative um, to dramatically expand what plans could be HSA qualified and we came up with an actuarial value standard and it was actually put in President Trump's uh, 2020 budget where any plan, regardless of how it was designed, that had an actuarial value, an actuarial value means that's the percentage on average of uh, healthcare claims that the plan will pay so any plan that has an actuarial value below seventy percent or eighty percent um, could be integrated with an HSA, and you could you would double or triple the number of people that have HSAs with that reform. Now we couldn't do that administratively. What we looked at doing administratively were two things. One of which we accomplished, and one of which we we didn't. The first was to expand the. Uh, preventive services that could be covered below the deductible. So we thought, all right, you are a diabetic. Um, insulin's really important. A plan should be able to cover that below the deductible and still be able to be HSA qualified. Same thing, beta blockers or statins for people with heart conditions, uh, inhalers for people with asthma. And in 2019, the administration expanded what could be considered preventive. So this was an IRS list. So you can now have a high deductible health plan um, that covers certain preventive services below the deductible like that and still be HSA qualified. So we were able to accomplish one thing that, you know, John Goodman has identified, um, has a restriction on HSAs. The second is, could you integrate um, an HSA um, uh, qualified plan with a direct primary care arrangement? And we pushed IRS on this hard. and it was it was not something we were able to accomplish they were able in um in 2020 to issue a proposed rule that would allow people to use hsa or hra amounts on a direct primary care arrangement um, but they considered the direct primary care um, arrangement a separate plan so you couldn't make hsa contributions um if you had a direct primary care arrangement um, anyway, that is basically all for not. That regulation was not finalized. But those are, that, those are the ways we, we tried to expand HSAs and with preventative care, we were able to expand what the type of plan people could have and still also make HSA contributions.
1: So I'm, I'm you know, glad you brought in, up the- in, interject Go ahead, John. Michael, if I can just interject a, a small bit of criticism for the Trump administration. I applaud everything Brian did. Um, but, you know, it, it politics governs everything, and uh, we didn't have candidates out there, including President Trump himself, saying, uh, look, this is what we want to do. We want you to be able to talk. We want Medicare patients to be able to talk to their doctors by phone and by email. We want you to be able to have an account where you can choose a primary care doctor that you can talk to at night and on weekends and get all your primary care for a very reasonable amount of money. So if if all you're doing is dealing behind the scenes, it's really hard to get this done. I, I think a lot of the things that Brian's talking about would have had great political appeal if um, if we had more candidates out there running on these issues. Because I can tell you, this is these are the kinds of things voters really want.
0: Speaking of political appeal, the John, you mentioned Brian you mentioned more recently that. There are all sorts of interest groups that try to block reform in this area uh, partly for ideological reasons uh, but also they're just interest groups that don't want to disrupt the massive uh, cash flows uh, from workers straight into the pockets of insurance companies and healthcare providers we're talking about a trillion dollars of workers earnings every year that the worker never gets to touch their employer touches their employer takes that money sends it directly to insurance companies if the worker tries to get that money back they have to pay taxes on it so the government penalizes them and uh, and it's the people who are making money off of this system that are the biggest barriers to reform there have been attempts from president george h w bush on through president Obama and even uh, President Trump uh, uh, tried, as uh, Brian mentioned, to liberalize the rules around the tax treatment of, uh, of employee health benefits so that workers could control uh, more of that money or, or just to reform the tax exclusion generally. But it keeps running into this political buzzsaw of opposition that's both ideological and come from special interest groups that are making money off of the current situation so uh that's one of the reasons actually i mentioned uh, that uh, that i that i put forward the idea that brian mentioned uh of dramatically expanding health savings accounts tripling the contribution limits so that people could take all fifteen thousand dollars of that of of that money that their employer controls and put that In a health savings account and then they would get to decide how to spend it and they would be able to pick plans that have uh that you can integrate with the with direct primary care or that provide first dollar coverage for chronic care below the deductible and uh free from all of these rules that uh that 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 we're all talking about and, and that are frustrating patients and innovators right now but there's a problem uh how do you get uh It's hard to get any change, uh, much less a big change like that. And so, one of the things that I've tried to do is talk about what 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 I tried to what I displayed in that last graph that I showed. That the amount of money we're talking about here is really staggering. It is a trillion dollars every year that the tax exclusion allows employers to control. A trillion dollars of the workers' earnings that the tax exclusion allows employers to control, and. If we, reform the, if we talk about reforming the exclusion and expanding health savings accounts in a way that highlights to workers that that's your money and that you should get to control it, and with this change, you will be able to control it, not only sh- shouldn't that be attracted to workers, it would be, in effect, a tax cut that would be larger than any tax cut that President Trump or President Bush or even President Reagan had ever enacted. Uh, imagine returning a trillion per year from the people who didn't earn that money to the people who did earn it. It's not technically, it's not a tax cut or in, a, in, a, uh, in the sense of getting that money out of the government's hands and giving it to workers. But it, it would be a change in tax policy that takes money that the tax code encourages, forces workers to forfeit, but instead allows them to keep that money. Wouldn't that have have some appeal to, say, the party of limited government, the party of tax cuts to be able to to enact a reform that is that big, that sweeping, that, would, uh, uh, that it would be the largest tax cut in probably in American history and also deliver better health care because it, w- it would allow people to control their health care dollars, choose health care plans that meet their needs and that innovate in the direction of providing better access to care for people with chronic conditions and so forth. So the question is really about okay. the, 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 the politics of this. And wouldn't the idea of letting workers control all of that money, which is really theirs, have some political appeal?
1: All right, here's the political problem. You said a trillion dollars, but the whole health care system is actually three and a half trillion dollars, and it's all connected. So we have a huge pot of money here. Now, if you're a senator or you're a member of Congress, um, what happens, even if you're a Republican, is that every day somebody that's getting money from that three and a half trillion dollars is coming to your office <laughs> they're telling you what you want so this this is this is uh it it's hard to imagine how it could be otherwise there's so much money at stake now the uh the Medicare woman who wants to talk to her doctor by phone <laughs> or the employee who wants to take his health insurance with him to the next job uh they're not in there talking to that senator. And more, more than likely, the center never never hears about the problem. So the problems they hear about are special interest problems, and the special interests have no real incentive in radical reform of the of the system. Now, one of the things that happened on Brian's watch while he was there in the Trump administration was, uh, and this is a radical change from the Obama administration, employers can now do what. Partially do what you said, Michael. They can put money into an account, and the employee can buy health insurance, which they own. And this 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 came in effect uh, a year ago, this uh, last January, and uh, a radical change from from the Obama administration. Almost no coverage in the mainstream media, uh, or even in the health uh, uh, care media. And I, I bet most employers don't even realize they can do this, but it's it's a step in the right direction. You there are limitations. You have to buy Obamacare uh, individual coverage, but if you stop to think about it, you have Blue Cross there. They sell group insurance and they sell individual insurance. One is tied to the employer. The other is portable, you can take with you. So the idea isn't that radical when you stop to think about it. But, um, But that was an important change the Trump administration made. And that I think of as a wedge Uh, into a very complicated, special-interest-dominated system.
0: There's a driving force behind a lot of the positive changes in healthcare we saw coming out of the Trump administration. Brian, do you want to talk about that one? Because what John is touching on are really not just one, but two different alternatives to health savings accounts, two different things that the federal government has done to allow workers to control some of the money that their employer controls. One of them, I, I think, dates back to the Carter administration, flexible spending accounts. But the one that John is talking about is health reimbursement arrangements, something that happened uh, in uh, the George W. Bush administration but then because of your efforts, uh, the Trump administration expanded on. Do you wanna talk about that for a second?
2: I would love to. Thanks for setting me up, John and Michael. Um, So in the summer of 2017, as Congress was getting bogged down in, uh, ACA repeal and replace. Uh, I called in the federal departments, and I was like, "Okay, is the Republicans have campaigned on repealing and replacing Obamacare, providing relief, expanding options? It may be up to us. What can we do?" I, of course, started with HSAs. Uh, HSAs are the best because the individual controls the account, carries it with them from year to uh, carries it with them from employer to employer. Amounts roll over. Um, and as we already discussed, it was very hard to expand HSAs administratively. Um, but the treasury department said, you know, the Obama administration did this thing on HRAs that, uh, we're not big fans of. Um, and we are open to sort of going back and revisiting this. And what the Obama administration did is say it is illegal for employers to reimburse individual market premiums. And if employers do that, we will subject them to a $100 per day per worker penalty. I mean, basically a nuclear bomb to prevent them from doing that. Um, from our perspective, um, Republicans generally have been supportive of defined contribution health insurance arrangements. The books that I read on health policy decades often have started with, and Michael has, has laid this out, the number one problem with health policy emerges from the exclusion. Um, uh, for the reasons Michael mentioned. And uh, what what we can do is return choice and control to the worker, but through defined contribution arrangements. We um, uh, spent about two years, starting in the summer of 2017, and we released a final regulation in the summer of 2019 that allows employers to contribute through uh, health reimbursement arrangements for workers to buy coverage uh, that works for them in the individual market. Uh, There's a variety of reasons. This has to be, uh, this is ACA compliant coverage in the individual market. But in essence, what we did was equalize the tax treatment between employer selected plans for all the workers and employer contributions that workers use to purchase coverage for, for them and the in the uh, for themselves and their families in the individual market. I mean, one of the problems, um, and this is kind of stunning, is seventy five percent of firms with less than two hundred workers that offer coverage only provide their workers one choice of plan think what other financial product do individuals have so major financial product, do individuals have so little control over, even at large firms, um, a high percentage. I mean, it's, it's it's almost half of, uh, of large firms only offer their workers a single type of health insurance option. Um, And we know from economic research that workers value choice of health insurance. So this is a way um, uh, for uh, employers, many of whom uh, particularly if they're small, don't wanna be in the health insurance uh, business um, to offer a contribution that the worker takes to buy a plan that works best for them.
0: Okay, so uh, we've got the tax exclusion. Uh, it says to workers, let your employers control $15,000 of your earnings or else if you try to take that as cash, you'll pay taxes on it. So you may lose three, $5,000 of it. So that's like a, a penalty. Uh, Around the time of the Carter administration, the federal government said, well, we'll let you control a small portion of that through something called a flexible spending account. You can put some of that – some money aside tax-free that you could spend on medical care, but – and you can determine how much that is. But if you don't spend it all by the end of the year, then you lose it. So that kind of creates, that doesn't really give you control over that money because you uh, don't get to keep it. You, uh, it it creates a use it or lose it incentive. So that doesn't really solve the problem of the exclusion. Uh, The uh, the Archer medical savings accounts and then health savings accounts come online in the nineties and the early noughts. They let workers control a small portion of their health benefits dollars. Right now it's about $7,000 for a family, if you have family coverage but only if you enroll in a very restrictive as we talked about type of health plan and a lot of employers might not offer that and a lot of workers might not like that kind of health plan and it only HSAs have only given workers control over 5% of that trillion dollars what Brian you're talking about with HRAs is something that happened in the uh, in the Bush administration and then uh, uh, John mentioned that the obama or i can't remember now if it was john or brian mentioned the obama administration limited them what health reimbursement arrangements do is uh they al- allow the employer to give the worker basically i call it a line of credit where the employer will pay some of the workers medical bills tax-free again without a penalty so the worker gets to control that money it's it doesn't go toward health insurance and what the Obama administration said was, if the employer then takes that tax-free money, and, and and I should I should also add, it's a line of credit because there's no, there doesn't have to be any sort of a funded account. There doesn't have to be any money at all. Uh, the employer doesn't have to fund it until the employee uses it, and it's a little like a flexible spending account. Uh, the health reimbursement arrangements are because there's a use it or lose it incentive when you leave your employer. So you don't get to keep the money that you don't spend. So there's that perverse incentive as well. The Obama administration said was, if the employer tries to use this tax-free money to buy the worker individual market coverage, which would be a pretty significant step, uh, giving workers more control over their earnings and more choice when it comes to their health insurance, the Obama administration said, we're going to penalize you. And then the Trump administration undid that. And now small employers, thanks to Brian's work and the work of others in the Trump administration, small employers can give their workers a portion of their earnings to use to spend on health insurance premiums without facing a tax penalty. That like they would if they tried to take the $15,000 from their employer and then go buy insurance uh, as cash and go buy insurance themselves. But I'm gonna return now to to, to the point I made before, which is we're we're, we're making, we've got health savings accounts, uh, flexible spending uh, uh, accounts, and health reimbursement arrangements, all trying to take these small steps toward giving workers more control over that trillion dollars of their earnings, more flexibility in how to spend that money. uh, And we're having a hard time doing it. We're having a hard time getting these reforms passed both because of ideological objections and because the healthcare industry doesn't want workers to have the ability to say no to them, wouldn't well, you we? Have- I'm gonna pose, but I'm going to pose a question to Brian now. John, I got you responded to this before. I, I want to get Brian's thoughts on 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 the idea of re- reframing this entire debate over health savings accounts as this is a question of who gets to control that trillion dollars of the workers' earnings, if and I think this has been a failing on our part, they, the, the part of advocates free, mark, free market free uh, market healthcare reforms, that we haven't framed this as an issue of, it's the workers' money, they should get to control it, and geared our efforts on health savings accounts toward uh, giving workers control over every penny of that trillion dollars. Wouldn't that help to overcome some of the political barriers that we run into in Congress that you ran into in the Trump administration uh, Brian, uh, where the only people that Congress is hearing from are the special interests, wouldn't they also hear from taxpayers if we reframe the debate as providing that uh, huge trillion-dollar tax cut to workers?
2: Um, let me say one addition to your history, and then before I answer that question. So Congress also created um, something called QSERA's, Qualified Small Employee health reimbursement arrangements in the fall of 2016. So that's sort of a precursor to the individual coverage HRA. They did it in a bipartisan manner. It was signed into law by President Obama. It was more limited than what we did with the HRA rule, and it only applied to small um, employees. I think what we did with the HRA rule is bipartisan. Um, It appeals to a lot of Republicans because they want to find contribution health insurance, more control in the hands of of employees. And for Democrats, this is really a way to expand um, the number of people that have ACA compliant coverage and uh, potentially double the size of the individual market. I think your political question, Michael, is really hard. Um, I am... uh, deeply disappointed. I mean, in 2017, Republicans were going to do health reform out of the gate, and we did nothing legislatively to expand HSAs. We didn't do anything big to expand HSAs. We also didn't do anything small um, to expand HSAs. Um, And I still don't understand what happened with the initial sort of legislation that came out of the House of Representatives. When we got to the Senate, the Senate started including HSA provisions. So they increased contribution limits. They allowed, um, I think, HSAs for premiums. They may have moved to the uh, actuarial value standard. Um, and I think right now, I don't... So, so I think Republicans really dropped the ball when they had power in 2017. And 20. Um, as far as framing this for individuals, it's complicated. People expect they're gonna get insurance through their employer. And I don't know if they've been conditioned along the lines where they expect um, a group plan. And it's just sort of, we have to sort of fight inertia of individuals too. And individuals are afraid of changing the status quo. I mean, if you ask people um, uh, what they think of the US healthcare system, a lot of people will say it's too costly, it's problematic. But then you ask people what they think of their own health insurance. And like 75% of people are happy with their own health insurance. Um, now, a lot of those people are people that hardly ever use their health insurance to get health care. But it does present an, a problem when you can have um, uh, politicians create fear that whatever the change is going to happen is going to take away people's health insurance.
0: As David Goldhill likes to say, if you are like your health insurance, it's probably because you don't know how much it costs. And I think that returning that trillion That's dollars to workers who earned it.
2: Obscure- We've obscured the cost. So people don't know how much to so. go. I think, you know, these reforms that, you know, our defined co- contribution are in part to get people to understand exactly how much of their income they are losing in health insurance benefits. And I don't think a lot of people get that, that it's one for one. If your worker gives you, if your employer gives you a dollar of health insurance, it's because that dollar is coming out of your wages.
0: And that's uh, the, you know the tax code is keeping people ignorant in this regard, and the, the people who, who know that that money is a uh, one for one trade off that they are for every dollar of health benefits and uh, not getting a dollar's worth of cash wages or or other compensation. I th- think we haven't framed this properly. We haven't ex- uh, made that the, the cornerstone of our uh, efforts to expand health savings accounts. And frankly, I, I, one of the reasons I think we need to do it is because something, Brian, you touched on. Republicans are terrible on this. They, they w- went into 2017 promising to repeal and replace Obamacare. The House bill didn't do any such thing? It didn't repeal Obamacare. Obamacare's central provisions would have remained. Same thing in the Senate bill. And as you say, they didn't do anything on health savings accounts. Uh, I think that the only, maybe the only way to get Republicans to care about health care, to care about doing the right thing on health care and expanding health savings accounts, is if we frame it as a tax cut. And I think that's one of the one of the arguments for. Uh, pushing for wholesale reform of the exclusion, replacing the current exclusion for employer paid premiums with a tax exclusion for HSA contributions, because that would deliver uh, an effective tax cut of about a trillion dollars per year. That's something Republicans can get their heads around. Uh, And and it would also deliver us better health care. And unfortunately, you know, we get a lot of opposition because uh, once consumers controlled that trillion dollars, not that much of they would stop sending uh, all of that trillion dollars to the health sector year after year, and there would be a lot of uh, wailing and grinding and gnashing of teeth among healthcare providers because uh, all of a sudden consumers would have more say in. uh, in in their healthcare spending and a lot of information providers would have to uh, uh, would probably go out of business as a result so we are running low on time uh we're coming almost to the end i want to ask both uh john and brian what's your agenda for health savings accounts right now or or reforming the tax treatment of health insurance more broadly Uh, what changes should congress be making this year uh what Uh, what reforms should candidates uh, for federal office be putting into their platforms?
1: John? Well, here's something I think that is very doable. Uh, You mentioned three kinds of savings accounts that we have, and, and probably they cover more than 100 million people combined. And each of these accounts has advantages over the other two, and each of them has disadvantages over the other two. And the advantages are things that people like and the disadvantages are things that people don't like. So I would like to see a reform where we give everybody access to a single account. And this account should be flexible, should fit with any third party insurance. It should be individually owned and travel with the individual from job to job. And it should roll over from year to year. And I think that would be, uh have a lot of voter appeal. We get a lot, get rid of a lot of regulations that don't make any sense. And, um, I don't see why we, we couldn't do something like that in a bipartisan way.
0: Brian? Brian, I'm not hearing you, I don't know if others are.
2: Sorry, I. so since we're, the question was about the tax treatment of health insurance, I think the most important thing that Congress can do this year is defeat um, the expansion of ACA subsidies. Um, They are very distortionary, inflationary, um, and just create a host of problems. Uh, So that is, to me, the the top tax tax health policy issue. Uh, It's probably not going to be bipartisan. Um, As far as HSA policy, I think the most important thing is to expand. I, I like John's idea. I think that you have all these accounts, and it makes sense to sort of get all the stuff that we like about them and have one simple account that people understand and that is carried with people over time like hsas are hras are useful in that now you can use them to pay for individual market premiums but that's only if the employer decides to do that it's the employer sets the the contributions for the it sets the rules for the account i think we need to expand the number of people that have hsas um so anything that increases the plans that can be integrated with health savings accounts um, is, I think, the most important type of reform.
0: And you mentioned that the 70% actuarial actuarial value standard that you proposed uh, in the Trump administration would expand the number of HSA holders by how much?
2: It would double them. So it would double them with uh, with not that significant of a budgetary cost. If you went to an eighty percent actuarial value standard, um, uh, our modeling and the modeling was done by the Treasury Department. Uh, we triple the number of households that have HSAs.
1: So of those but three let's, changes, let's be clear about what let's Let's be clear about what Brian's talking about. He's really talking about getting rid of a lot of regulations that interfere with giving people what they want, and then if you Maximize individual choice and you maximize what the market can deliver, uh, of course, more people are going to have health savings accounts. So it's a great idea.
0: So you you expand the universe of health insurance plans that people can uh, have, that people can tie to a health savings account and that entitles them to make tax free HSA contributions. And I'm all for that idea. Uh, I I think one of the, uh, of you mentioned uh, in, the, uh, in the three parts of the large HSA proposals that I put out 10 years or so ago, one of them was to triple the contribution limits. Another one was to eliminate the requirement that you have health insurance in order to have a health savings account. And the third is to allow people to purchase health insurance tax-free with their HSA funds. Uh, I think it, you may be right. It may be that that first uh, or, or the, the, the prong that expands the universe of health plans that you can uh, accompany or that uh, uh, can accompany a health savings account. Uh, I, my preference would be to get rid of uh, that requirement entirely because uh, any time the government creates a tax preference for people who buy health insurance, the government's gotta define what health insurance is. And inherently that's going to limit the market. It's going to limit people's ability to get the type of health insurance that they want. The uh, the ability of innovators to uh, to introduce new products and gain a toehold in the market because they're not gonna be eligible for those tax preferences. Um, but uh, I, uh, I like John's idea of combining all of those, uh, all, all tax advantaged uh, savings accounts or spending arrangements into one account that has the advantages of all and the disadvantages of none. I think that the large health savings account proposal tripling the contribution limits, eliminating the insurance requirement and allowing tax-free purchases of health insurance. I think it accomplishes all of those things. And it also uh, uh, allows us to talk about health savings accounts in a totally different uh, way or in an additional way that appeals to people who uh, usually don't listen uh, when it comes to healthcare, but I mean, Republicans and conservatives uh, so that uh, we can help to, and talk about it in a way that can help to overcome the political resistance to genuine reform that we're always gonna see from the healthcare industry. So we are awfully close to uh, our our quitting time at 1 p.m. I wanna thank Brian Blaze of Blaze Strategies, John Goodman of the Goodman Institute and the Independent Institute for joining us today. Uh, I wanna encourage uh, all of our viewers to. Uh, to follow at Cato Health on Twitter and uh, and and subscribe to the Cato Health newsletter for more updates about events and uh, and publications that, uh, that the Cato Institute is putting out on health policy. And we hope to see you at our next Cato Health event. Thank you.